Well, today we're going to, as Jim mentioned, introduce a new book. It's kind of a a mini-series. I remember the first mini-series that I can remember was Roots. And I don't know that we'll have the, uh, the acclaim or the viewership that Roots had, but I do hope that it will bless you as we go through this wonderful book of Titus. And we're going to, over the next few months, I hope, complete this book as Jim has given me some opportunities to preach, for which I'm so thankful. And so I'd ask now if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1 in verse 1. So this has been a brief introduction, and introductions are important. When we, when we meet new people, we want to remember some things about them. We want to remember their names. We want to try and piece together a name and a face and maybe some details about their lives. Because first impressions are important and we want to learn things about the new folks that we get a privilege to meet through these introductions. And this idea is what's conveyed in our title, Why Does an Introduction Matter? Why does an introduction matter? Let's take a look at our scripture and I'll read our first four verses and then share some comments about that text with you. Follow along in your copy of God's word, if you would, as we begin Titus chapter one and verse one. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior." Titus's introduction gives us an abundance of information. In fact, this introduction is one of the longest in the Pauline epistles. Second only to Romans and Galatians, Romans with its 93 words, our introduction here in Titus has 75 words. So why this long introduction for this short little epistle? Well, We'll talk more about that as we move along. And we recognize it because Titus is conveying a great amount of material in this introduction, or rather Paul is, to Titus in this introduction. And he writes this letter to Titus to instruct him in the ministry. And in this respect, there are several similarities to 1 Timothy. And in fact, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are often grouped together and referred to as the pastoral epistles. Paul is giving instruction to these pastors on how to handle their respective churches. And Titus and Timothy are both written around A.D. 63, which is also proximal to the writing of 1 Peter and Hebrews. 2 Timothy and 2 Peter are both written just after these epistles, around A.D. 65 to 66, just before the death 
of Paul and Peter and just before the destruction of Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the timetable of the early church, after the Lord's death in AD 30, we have the forward moving of the church and Paul's three missionary journeys. And we're now getting to the end of that. And those all conclude just before Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70. So these books make up the final books of the New Testament with the exception of the Johannine writings, which are the Gospel of John, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation. So again, uh, a bit more introduction leading to our title. Why does an introduction matter? Now, oftentimes in messages, when there is a question mark in the title, the pastor wants to lead you through the message and to have you come to an understanding of the answer to the question as we go through the message. But this introduction and this message, I want to give you the answer up front. And the answer to our question as to why does an introduction matter is because it gives vital information. And I want you to focus on that as we move through today. This introduction serves two purposes. It, it serves to introduce you to Titus and to his ministry. But it also introduces you to someone of great importance. It introduces you to yourself. That's right. It introduces you to yourself. It's an introduction, rightly understood, that applies to introduce you to yourself. That is to your spiritual self and that which God calls you to and what you should be in his service and what he wants you to be and with that which we each need to be growing in. So we'll come to this through our, three, our theme, which represents each of our points in our message, five vital components of an introduction that define your life. Five vital components of an introduction that define your life. Let's go to our first point, which I've titled an introduction in verse 1a. Paul gives us two vital aspects of himself and of what every believer is to be in the first point of verse 1. And the first is that he is a bondservant of God. That is the Greek word doulos, and it means slave. The other translations that use bondservant and servant are efforts to be culturally sensitive, and that is sensitive to the abominations of American slavery. That is the slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries in the Western world. And that is indeed an abomination. But this is not the biblical connotation of the word doulos and slave. Rather, it is completely the opposite. In the ancient world, a slave was a title that was not at all demeaning. In fact, many people would sell themselves into slavery so as to have a good job, so as to have a stable environment to raise their families. And were they serving in that capacity long enough, they would eventually be those that were given rights similar to a home-born child or son. So it was a very different thing. And we furthermore do not ever, not for one instance, interpret the Bible in light of our culture. We can apply it for our culture and we must, but we do not interpret it that way. 
And this is this whole idea of a woke mentality or social justice or intertextuality or social reengineering or any other term that you may have heard are an even bigger biblical offense than is an errant translation of this word. And if you've got questions or thoughts or want to know more about those subjects, I would hearken you to go back to our pastor's messages from last fall where he beautifully described and delineated the biblical aspects on those considerations. But Paul was a self-acknowledged slave of God. He realized that like a slave, he was purchased by God. He was owned by God and he had no rights to his own life. How radically different is this than the self-entitlement world in which we live where people believe everyone owes them a living or owes them respect or owes them honor. Or one of the greatest offenses in our society, in our world today, is that you've disrespected me. Oh, don't disrespect me. Please, we deserve no respect. This is an an absolute ridiculous connotation. Beloved, we are slaves of God. He bought us with the price of the the blood of his beloved son, as we see in 1 Peter 1.18, where Peter writes, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. What a beautiful comparison to the lives that we think we live or the lives that we inherit in our world for which we ought to be respected. And Peter's acknowledgement of those as futile, as useless, of vain, of no account, and especially compared with the life which has been purchased for us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that unblemished lamb that gave himself on the cross of Calvary so that we could have life and have it in abundance. Paul knew what that looked like as well, and he writes about it in 1 Corinthians 6.20, where he says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Well, that's what we are to do. These bodies are given to us that we would exalt our God, that we would bring him glory. And this is our highest and chief end. Not only was Paul a slave of God, by the way, but this is the only time in scripture Paul identifies himself as a slave of God. In some of the other introductions to the epistles, he calls himself a slave of Christ but never, other than here, a slave of God. And this is cluing us into some incredible Trinitarian truths that lie in this introduction. So be alert for more of it as we go along this morning, because there is much more. But the second vital facet of these first words is that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for apostle is apostolos. It is a transliteration. That is where we take a word from a source language to a target language, and it basically remains unchanged. Apostolos to apostle. And that is because the word has so much power and impact and meaning in the original language that we want to bring it straight in to the target language. And this Greek word, apostolos, means one who is sent. Now in this case, 
Paul is sent from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul saw or heard on seven different occasions the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is an apostle or one sent by Jesus in the same sense as were the original 11 apostles. Now, there are others in the New Testament who are called apostles. But those are the ones sent by the early church, by the early apostles. And there's a difference that we should consider between these two, between that is the original 11 plus Paul and those later termed as apostles. And we could define that as those with a capital A, those first 11 and Paul, and those with a small a that are later in the scripture called apostles. Those with the small a are those that the church sends out, but they also are gifted in that way for that office. It's very important to note that distinction and that understanding. And each of these, and particularly those with the small a, are supernaturally gifted to fulfill the role of apostle for the work of the ministry. Now, there are no longer individuals whom God gifts for this role of apostle. Just like there are no longer men who God gifts with the gift of prophecy. Those gifts have ceased. They are over and they are done. They were for the authentication of the scripture. And no longer do they happen. So whether you hear that there is Apostle Bob from the local Pentecostal church or on TBN or whatever it might be, that's not right. That's not biblical and that's not accurate because that office has ceased. However, when it comes to being sent, there is a little something called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, where the Lord said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And beloved, in this sense, every one of you are sent out by God. This charge of the Great Commission applies to you and to your lives. You are sent out by Jesus Christ. You are indwelt by His Holy Spirit as believers. This is the greatest gift of all time, isn't it? What more could we ask that God has opened our eyes, that He has taken us from darkness to light, that He has lifted us up out of the mire of this earth and placed us on the solid rock of Christ so that we can know His Word, so that we can love Him, so that we can grow in it and encourage one another. And this is why we're here, to carry forth the Great Commission. Every other spiritual endeavor that we engage in even that great singing will be infinitely better in heaven. The only thing we do here on this earth that we can't do better in heaven is share the gospel of Jesus Christ and carry forth the great commission work. And that's what God has left us here to do, to carry this message. Blood, brothers and sisters, you are the A-team. Okay, you're on the field. Look behind you. There's nobody in the benches back there. It's all you. And that's what God has called us to. And every one of you are divinely called to share this message. So how does our introduction define your life? Well, very simply, 
you too are a slave of God. And you too are one sent by Jesus Christ. Are you ready to embrace meeting yourself and this new person that God desires you to be? Well, let's go on and see a few more of the benefits of yourself in our second point, which I've titled Your Description. Your Description. Paul continues on in the second half of verse 1 for the faith of those chosen of God. The reason that he is a slave and apostle is for the faith of the chosen. The Greek word chosen is the same root as the word elect. Those who God has elected before the foundation of the world and chosen for salvation. Now some folks struggle with the doctrine of election. But it's taught repeatedly throughout scripture. And it's understandable that we would struggle with it because it's a complex phenomenon. It's a deep and important topic. And if you have questions about it, please come and see Pastor Jim, come and see myself or any of our elders. We would love to speak with you about that. And we'll touch more on this doctrine in the weeks ahead as it occurs again in this letter. But Paul is fulfilling these roles so as to build up the faith of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? This means that we all need to be built up in our faith. I do, you do, we all do. That is one of the purposes of being together in the church. We all need to be strengthened. And this is why God divinely and intimately places every individual among you into the local church for the work of this body. We are members of one another. We are responsible to serve and to lift up and to hold one another before our God. And this is just what every detail and every meeting and every facet of Heritage Bible Church has done for 20 years and Lord willing for every day until he comes back to get us. So following this in verse 1 is the next description, which is the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. The knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul's next reason that he is a slave and apostle is for the truth. And what is the truth? Well, Scripture tells us a little about that in Galatians 2.5. Paul writes in Galatians 2 and 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. The fundamental component, the the base element of truth, beloved, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is his life, his death and burial, and his resurrection and ascension, which he has accomplished in perfect sinless fashion, To redeem us back from our sin. This is the foundation of the truth. This is what we must have. This is what we must understand. It is the the most important component of the truth. All of this word is truth. But it all points to the focus of the gospel. All to the focus of Jesus Christ. And Paul rightly understood that. And it is the truth which accords with godliness. It is the scripture, 
The gospel is the focus and the way in which a believer is brought to new life. It is him that opens our eyes to himself, that helps us to see and that brings us from that darkness to light and opens our eyes. But it is the word of truth, which is the whole scripture, the whole counsel of God that leads one to holiness and godliness. You see, there is an effect of this word. For those that are believers, for those who are studying, for those who are sitting under the word, it impacts us. It changes us. And it's supposed to. We're supposed to be different as a result of being together. Yes, we're to be different from the world, but we're to be different each and every day as God's words impacts our heart. And we realize that we have yet still much growth to do. Paul mentioned this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 where he said, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, if you're familiar at all with Awana, that's the Awana theme verse and a wonderful verse. But look at the power that exists there. We're to present ourselves approved before God by handling rightly this word so that we're not going to be ashamed. You know, Peter tells us that if we would follow in God's word and truth, that it will keep us from falling and even from stumbling. We had the privilege the last couple days to run up to Stanley and wallow around in the dirt a little bit camping, and it was a wonderful time. And as usual, I'm up in the middle of the night kind of wandering around and hoping that I'm not going to fall. It's a much bigger deal at this age than it was 20 or 30 years ago to think about falling down. Well, We're told by Peter that it will not only keep us from falling, but it will keep us from stumbling. And here now, that it's more than that, that it will keep us from being even ashamed. What a blessing to recognize this, to understand how powerful is this word of truth. And it is the truth that results in godliness, which supports the faith of every believer, which began this second point of your description. In the first part of verse 2, we get our third and final description in this, which is the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life. What is the goal of our faith? What did we just so wonderfully sing about? In the day I will see, glorious day it will be. It is that which we grow to in our understanding of our faith. The culminating aspect of all that we do in this life. This is our hope, is it not? I can't be shaken. I don't have to worry about the things that are continuing to onslaught me. I have to do my part. I have to grow in godliness. But God is taking me to eternity. He is taking me to that hope. It is the end pursuit of all that we do. And this is the sure and confirmed hope that the Bible repeatedly speaks about in nearly every New Testament book. We see this incredible hope. You know, we've been having a wonderful series downstairs on heaven for the last seven weeks, all of which, by the way, you can listen to online. A place where there will be no more sin where we will no longer age, where we will no longer see these bodies of ours failing as a tent, as a cloth that is wearing out and being torn down, where there will be no more tears, where there will be no more crying and sorrow, that hope when we will see Jesus as he is. 
incredible. Titus uses this same phrase in Titus 3.7, which we'll get to, but is so instructional to us right now. And he writes, Paul writes in Titus 3.7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Think about that for a minute. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's that same phrase, hope of eternal life. How does it come? So tell us that we have to work for it, that it's got, I got to be good enough. You know, yeah, you, you all better go into the ministry. You all better become a pastor because that's where you're going to get there. No, that's not what it says. It says that it is a grace gift. What is a grace gift? It means it's free, just like our salvation. God gives it to us. We don't earn it. It's all from him. It is so incredible to recognize this hope that we are heirs according to that. And not just that, but that we are justified. That word justified means that we are declared not guilty. It is a legal term, meaning that we are righteous. Well, well what about sin? Well, sin kills. It always kills. Sin moves us away from Christ. And all sin and falls short of the glory of God. But this tells us that that sin is removed from us and that we are seen as clean and justified and righteous as a gift from his grace. And as a result of that, he's going to carry us through to an eternity with him in heaven. Now that, beloved, is good news. That is hope. That is what we cling to every day and the beautiful reality of the hope of eternal life. And these three facets describe every true Christian one who possesses the faith, pursues the truth towards godliness, and has the fervent hope of eternal life. Now, having been introduced to yourselves and seeing your description, let's go to our third point, your direction. Your direction. Paul recognizes that he was a slave and apostle, but that, that those roles were to be focused one direction, towards God. We'd previously seen two Trinitarian aspects in verse 1. And now Paul again focuses on God the Father. And as he does so, he gives us detail about who God is at the end of verse 2. He is the one who does not lie. Literally, in the Greek, it is one who is without any falsehood. Or the one who is free from all deceit. He uses a negative term without any deceit, free from all error, to convey so powerfully this point of who God is. It's one thing to say that you are true or that you are truth. But in God, there is absolutely nothing that is false. Everything that emanates from him is true. Everything is right. There is no deceit. There is no error. There is nothing that in any way can be conceived of falsehood. So when we look into his word, it must contain and must, by the nature of who he is, be the same. It is a book that God has breathed out to us, 2 Timothy 3.16 and it is without error from beginning to end. It is without contradiction. When we see that contradiction in the Bible, the contradiction is not here, beloved. It's here and here. And that's what we have to wrestle with and get to the bottom of. 
This negation is even stronger affirmation than the positive. As his word is truth, so also is everything from him. Hebrews 6.18 and 1 Samuel 15.29. Both confirm that God cannot lie. Go and look up those verses and ponder the context of Hebrews 6.18 and 1 Samuel 15.29. They're powerful verses that help us see this glorious consideration of our God. It is contrary to his character that he should lie and it would deny his perfections. He is also described here as one who is faithful and unchanging. As the end of verse 2 describes that which God promised from the long ages ago. This is God's plan of salvation and eternal life in his son. This is the eternal plan of God from where before the foundations of the earth, he established salvation and he chose those whom he would save and thus has known each of us who are his children and everyone before and all those after since that time. This is the the beautiful picture as God is unchanging His plan of salvation is unchanging. It was the same in the old covenant as it is in the new. In the old testament as the new. And will always be the same. He brings us to saving faith in himself. And he is faithful. Go read 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. Where it says that if we deny ourselves, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And in verse 3, he didn't just determine this plan, but he revealed it where he says, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation. What does that mean? But at the proper time? God's eternal plan was manifested in the proper time. Beloved, we would talk about that as the progress of revelation. God's plan of salvation began really at creation and at the first six days. And that's why we know everything from the beginning, six literal 24-hour days is true and accurate and is God's representation of creating all mankind in his image. But really in Genesis 3.15, we start to see this with the one who would crush the head of the enemy. And then that plan continued to develop. It continued to be manifested at the proper time as we went into the covenants and the Noahic and Abrahamic and Mosaic to the priestly and Davidic covenant and the new covenant, all telescoping one out of another and expanding to show us this picture and the promises and prophecies of Messiah who would be revealed in his first advent as Jesus Christ. This is the progress of revelation. This is the continued process at the proper time. Into the New Testament where we saw more details of the doctrine of the old and the confirmation of what the old told us about his second coming. And all of this as the content of God's complete word that manifested at the proper time. The Old and New Testament is the full revelation of God's salvific plan. This word proclamation in verse 3, it's actually fairly rare in our Bibles. It means the content of sacred messages and particularly preaching. Preaching is the God-ordained method by which we're to understand the plan for our lives. 
God has designed that we would gather underneath his word to hear it proclaimed to us. And that's what we do at Heritage Bible Church. You go to a lot of churches around town and you can get some crazy smoke and light and mirrors, music and all sorts of things. And you can hear some of the greatest stories that this guy concocts about his life and about all the social ills and pros and all the different things. And when you leave at the end of that service, you'll have absolutely nada. You don't need any of that. You need God's word. This is the word he wrote to you to change your life. And that's what we do here. And it's all that we do here. It is the hope that we have in Christ. Romans 10 beautifully conveys God's methodology. In Romans 10, 9, he tells us that if you confess Jesus Christ with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that proclamation and that confession comes from preaching. And he goes on to talk about how, how will they know unless one is sent? And so the preachers are sent and how beautiful are the feet of the good, those that bring good news. My brothers and sisters, this begs the question of how we receive this teaching. There are many ways for you to receive the preaching of God's word. Now, I'm not talking about live stream or podcast or audio messages. Those are all secondary elements. I'm talking about how you sit in church and receive the authority of God's word. Because like in any communication, there's a lot of different ways to receive it. Sometimes we're listening to people and we're not too engaged. We look like we're paying attention, but we're miles away. I'm thinking about the vacation that's starting next week. I'm thinking about work. I'm thinking about all that went on yesterday or this morning or that might happen tonight. And we're just not too engaged. We look attentive, but we're not. Now, this takes for granted those that might be sleeping or not included here. If somebody next to you is sleeping, give them a little elbow. There are some things they can use to hear here, I promise. And just, we can just take a minute and be honest with each other here, can't we? We've all been at that place where we've been in church and we've been miles away. Looking and being attentive, but not but hopefully most of the time we are at least active and attentive and engaged. Listening and following along to what's being said. And this is obviously much better than the former. But studies show that only 20% of the material listened to in a teaching or preaching setting will be retained only two hours later. 20% in two hours But what if you're listening and taking notes? For the one taking notes, as much as 50% of what is heard will be retained for eight hours after that teaching. That's pretty amazing. Now hold on to your hats. For the one who is taking notes and then takes time to review and talk about those notes within that eight-hour period, their retention goes to over 70% for seven days. And longer if they continue in the process. So how about you? 20% for two hours? Or 70% for seven days? And what are we talking about here? This is the word of the living God. This is divine revelation from God to you. It's his plan for how you're to live your life. Now let's just say for a moment that somebody came up to you and they said, in 
seven days, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in a small aircraft and you're going to take off with the pilot. And when he reaches altitude, he's going to put on his parachute and he's going to jump out. But for those seven days, we're going to give you a manual. And it tells you everything you need to know about this plane. It's a very advanced plane. And it'll show you how to turn on the autopilot, which will fly the plane and land it. Do you think you'd pay attention for those seven days? Do you think when you got in the plane, you'd take the manual? I think you would. Well, if the plane crashed, you might die. But beloved, if your life crashes, you will spend an eternity apart from our God and our King. How are you receiving the sacred messages and the proclamation of the preaching of God's word? Oh, and by the way, we provide note sheets and pens so we can help. This is your direction Pursuit of a holy God, his eternal plan of salvation, and that plan revealed in his holy word, the Bible. Come with me to our fourth point at the end of verse 3, your directive. Your directive. Verse 3 ends with these words, with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul is referencing the eternal plan of salvation revealed in his word through preaching. He's been entrusted with this word and it's a direct and emphatic charge that he's received. And it's literally in the Greek which I myself have been entrusted. And he's excited to receive this charge. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 1.11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I've been entrusted. He's excited about this. It is the glorious gospel. It is the blessed God. And he further tells us that this eternal degree is composed of commandments. Commandments are simply written down commands. They're words that demand obedience. And the one who obeys the command is faithful. And the one who disobeys is unfaithful. It's very simple. 1 John 2.3 puts it this way. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. If we disobey, if we say that we obey his commands and yet do not, we are a liar. And his truth is not in us. This does not mean that we'll achieve sinless perfection, but it does mean there's a progress of growth in coming to know and pursuing obedience. And for the one who does not, who says he is obeying and isn't, he is not a part of God's family. 1 John 5, 3, he adds more to this. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's a joy to do this. It's a peace to do this. It brings us such hope. And these come from God our Savior, as verse 3 notes. It is Christ who accomplishes the saving work on the cross of Calvary. But it is God the Father who Paul calls our Savior the one who established this plan to whom all glory is to be given for it. Again, more of a Trinitarian aspect. And the Son himself even ascribing all glory to the Father. And Paul was entrusted with this. And he passed that down. In 2 Timothy 2.4, he told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And it's further passed down in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. 
the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see that progress? from Paul to Timothy and Timothy to other men and down through the generations and now it is coming to us. And we are those who must carry these truths to share them with other faithful believers and to proclaim them to the world through the way that we live, yes, but through our words. It's been said, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. I'd say no, use your words. It is the name of Jesus Christ alone. It is the gospel alone which will save. We must proclaim him as Lord and Savior. For there is salvation in no other name as Acts 4.12 tells us. Salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Beloved, our world is going to hell fast. And the answer is Jesus Christ. And that name is put on your heart and your mind for you to speak it to the world around you. This, beloved, is your directive. An introduction, your description, your direction, your directive, and finally, your destination. Look at verse 4 with me. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from the God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Your destination, my dear family, is just this, that you too would be a true child of the common faith. This is the third reference to truth in these four verses. Although each one a different Greek word, the word translated true or genuine or my own has the idea of being legitimate, that that which is lawful or truly born in wedlock, one to whom all the rights of sonship are due. Not only a true child, but this new birth and life of this child is that which is in accord with a common faith. This is the faith which is the possession of every believer. Every one of us in the room today that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have the same faith. We are indwelt completely with the same spirit. There is no greater increase in spirit. There is no greater increase in faith. We are the same. And it is a grace gift of God by which we are saved. And this results in God's completion of this faith, which will be our glorification in our eternal presence and dwelling with him in heaven. And in the process of that inheritance, we have the grace and peace that Paul extends to Titus that are now ours on earth. How great is that? How great is it to know the grace and peace, the hope, the love, the joy that the world has no idea about? Oh, they think they know those things, but they have no idea of the power and the depth and the might of the biblical conception of these words. What a joy to understand all that God is doing for us And in the process of that inheritance that we have now in our life. And he closes by returning to address the two previously referenced persons of the Trinity in the Father and Son. This time, Jesus as the one referenced as Savior. J. Vernon McGee said about these verses, Paul will dwell on this theme that when the gospel is believed, it will lead to godliness 
because the people on the island of Crete were abusing the grace of God. They said that if they had been saved by grace, they were free to live in sin if they wanted to. Paul answers that right here in the first verse by saying that when the truth of God is believed, it will lead to godliness. Grace saves us, but it also lays down certain disciplines for our lives and calls us to live on a high plane. You cannot use the doctrine of the grace of God to excuse sin and live in sin. May I say this kindly, but I must say it. In that case, you are not saved by grace. You are not saved at all. Salvation by grace leads to a godly life. Beloved, why does an introduction matter? Because it shows us the pattern of our lives and thus defines what our lives are to look like. If these elements are not those which are currently defining your life, then it's time to make a change. It's time to introduce yourself to yourself, to the yourself that God wants you to be from His Word. It's time to start taking more seriously the identification which God has placed upon you as a slave and as one sent for His purposes. It's time to embrace more fully your charge to be bearers of the gospel of truth, of the word of God, both lived and spoken. It's time to get more serious about our need for greater obedience to his command. Are you ready to receive this introduction? I pray that you are. We'll continue our mini-series next week. And don't forget, you have the manual so you can get started ahead of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the hope that it brings to our hearts and our souls. Thank you, Father, that it stirs us to recognize that each of us falls short. Lord, I fall short of doing that which you have called me to, and I know that my brothers and sisters do as well. Forgive us for these shortcomings. Strengthen us that we might see the beautiful plan that you've laid out that we would grow in holiness, that we would grow as those that proclaim Christ, that we would grow in our understanding that our life is not our own, but it is yours and you have purchased it with a price. Carry us out into the world, Lord, to be empowered by these things. Father, for those that do not know you today as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would just give them no rest until they would recognize that it is you and you alone who desire a relationship with them. Father, bring them out of the place of their self-reliance and darkness to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And use us, Lord, that we might be empowered as we go forth into this world, that we would be your emissaries and carry this most pivotal message, all so that you might be glorified for that alone is our greatest call. And we give you praise for it, asking your blessing on our time and the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.